Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, I want to welcome you to episode number 100 today, and I am so grateful for your listenership and as always for the work that you're doing out there for kids. I can't believe that the time has flown by and we've waded through the horrifics of a pandemic. We continue to experience shootings that threaten the lives of our children, and yet in the midst of all this darkness, there is the light of children and the light and joy of working with each other. And I hope that this podcast has brought you joy, the joy that I've felt doing the podcast. So please, please, please sit back and enjoy. My guest today is an encore guest, Dr. Robert Saul. Dr. Saul is a pediatrician and medical geneticist and has been guiding parents and their children's physical, behavioral, and mental health care for over 40 years. He is a professor emeritus and has developed the Parental Awareness Threshold, a simple framework that guides parents and guardians to actively parent with self-awareness, empathy, and compassion. Parents who use this framework create a healthy environment where children learn to build safe, stable, and nurturing relationships, as well as exhibit love and respect for others in their community. Dr. Saul is also a very prolific writer and has authored four books, and those will be included in the show notes, and I would highly recommend you reading those. And... Let's sit back and take a listen to this discussion because to me, it really lifts up the reasons why we do medicine, why it's so important that we hang on to our role and our purpose for the work that we do with kids. Hey, Bob, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Leah. It's so great to be back. I am delighted. And as I mentioned before we started, you are my number 100 episode, 100th episode. So I'm so excited to have you be a part of that because you were there at the beginning. It's like a C note. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so glad that you're here. Well, I wanted to pivot a little bit from generally I talk about all kinds of topics about mental health. And I've talked about some pertaining to physician mental health and clinician mental health. But now I want to talk about the mental health of the profession, because I feel like there's a little disconnect and it makes me sad. And so I want to kind of talk a little bit about the art of medicine, the laying on of hands, what that means to people and why I think it's important that we shouldn't be technicians. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the things that you're working on, because you are a very busy man doing all kinds of very creative things. So why don't you tell me a little bit about where you are in life? Well, I retired at the end of 2020, and that was a hard process. I actually started that about 10 months before, started telling some of the patients, and that did not go over well with a lot of 
the patients. They did not want me to retire. And in many ways, it was very difficult for me too. But I realized it was time. There were some health issues and, and age, and I just needed to stop and smell a few more roses that I'd had my nose to the stone for close to 50 years. It was time to let back a little bit. So I did. But at the same time, I was also the president of the South Carolina chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So there was no diminution in workload. I mean, from what I was doing clinically to what I was doing on behalf of children in a more global sense, representing them in the state of South Carolina and carrying that to a national level. So that that has kept me busy. But one of the other big things that I'm finding is that I want to continue my writing. I think we talked last time that I've had three books and a co-authored book, and I'm working on another project, but I want to continue to get the message out there. I feel that strongly about that I can be a voice for children. I want to use my professional pedestal, pulpit, whatever one sees it as, to be that strong voice for children. And so I, while I When I retired, I wrote a blog piece that says, I might be retiring, but I'm not withdrawing. And in the words of Mark Del Monte, the the CEO of the American Academy of Pediatrics is advocacy. So I will never stop being that strong advocate in so many different ways. And each of us, each pediatrician brings their own unique tool set to that. So I realize I can't be all of those things. I just need to be what I've been doing and amplify it as much as I can. Well, I think that you can't be all the things all at the same time. So perhaps there's a season for different types of service. And I think that's something that in talking with you when we did our first podcast together was this idea of service to others and not only our service, but helping to teach children sort of their service and kind of civic duty, which I think empowers people to like be better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. My my most recent blog that I wrote was how to leave a Columbine world because Columbine is sort of what got me started in writing, writing all my work and coming up with five steps to community improvement, what I could do, what I could recommend other people could do. And that's citizenship. That's service. That's Citizens take care of each other. Citizens care for each other. Citizens care about each other. And citizens empathize with each other. And that's what a democracy is. And I think by and large, I mean, that happens in fits and starts, but we've lost track of it in our, in our news cycles where we're just yelling past each other. Right. Well, and I do think that's kind of in our DNA. I had a really nice conversation with Heather Forkey just a few podcasts back here, and she does a lot of work in trauma and resilience, a field you're very familiar with. And she talks about how we are born to affiliate with others. That is our kind of our salvation is that we connect with other people, which then brings me actually to the topic I wanted to cover today. And that's the idea of the art of medicine. I mean, there's the science of medicine, And we spend years learning all that, the physiology and microbiology and all those things that are critical to being a a physician. But then there's this art of medicine because people are not like cars, like you just replace a part. They have this soul. And at least I feel like I've come to over many years of practice is that it is that connection with other people that is part of the healing. And sometimes it's the only part of the healing because and when you work with kids with 
complex diseases, a lot of the stuff is not stuff we can fix. We ride the ride, we sit along. And so that the relationship that we have with others is, I think, it has to be at the center. I don't know. What do you think about that? That's something I've thought a lot about recently because one of the first steps I wrote about to community improvement was learning to be the best parent you could be. And when I started in medical practice, people would come to me and they came to you and say, tell me what I should do here, doc. How do I do this? And so my first instinct was to tell them what to do. Well, it's taken me four decades, but I finally realized that my job is not to tell them. My job is to help them, to empower them, to enable them. And that only comes with a long-term trusting relationship. So I can, if you will, gently peer behind the curtain, understand the situation that they have, their unique situation, and help them in this journey. For me to sit down and tell them they have to do A, B, and C might be specific medical things that need to be done. They might be able to do D, B, A, but they might not be able to do B and C because of their socioeconomic status or what the, a crisis that's in the family, grandmother has cancer or whatever. So my job is to understand, and that's where you're talking about the art of medicine. We can ask our routine medical questions and but we need to understand, we need to understand, need to let them know we really care about that. And the old adage, people don't really know how, really don't care how much they want to know how much you care is really comes back almost every encounter. So you're right. I mean, it's the art of medicine that has really, I think, become more ingrained in me over 40 years. And even though I've retired, I think it's becoming stronger. All, all along. It feels like a, they talk about a calling, like a faith in the belief that being with other people is what is helpful. And the other thing I've learned through doing this podcast now for almost two years, what I've heard over and over from the clinicians who I think are some of the best is what you're saying, not to tell people, but ask people, what is it that you need? What's going well? What do you feel like you're really good at? And how can I help? with the areas that are important to you. So not important to me, but what matters to you. And that's not a textbook thing. I mean, then you have to sit in here and you have to respond. And that's what I think takes us beyond being technicians. It takes us to being physicians. Yeah. And that's why those extra years of training and the continuing training make such a difference. Yeah. Well, and you slog, slog it through, but I think it's those these intimate moments that we have with people when they're at their most vulnerable. They're sick, they're scared, and they they are laying bare. And to not honor that by listening. I was talking to you a little bit about my dad, who's 92, and he's losing his vision to macular degeneration, which that's a huge deal. And he can't read anymore. Well, he loved to read and he liked doing crossword puzzles and he can't. And we went to the ophthalmologist and there was never an acknowledgement of, I know this must be hard for you to be losing your vision. Tell me about that. And in fact, the whole appointment was spent with him dictating during the whole interview. Even when he was literally looking into my father's eyes, he was dictating and couldn't answer my dad's question. And I just thought, first of all, that felt disrespectful. But secondly, I thought, where is his joy of the physician of connecting with this person 
who is going through a loss. And it just made me so sad. Oh, yeah. And if you've been in the situation, I'm sure you have of dealing with young physician learners, medical students, residents. Those are the ideal times to work on those because they they easily get distracted by what people should be doing. A quick example, one afternoon, I was seeing a patient with a resident and uh, the resident came out and said, you're 30 minutes late. I'm not going to see them. And after we had a meeting of the minds, we decided that, yes, they were going to see them. But I thought back toward, and so the resident went to go see them. When I went out, this was after lunch. When I went out before lunch, as I drove away from the clinic, I saw a mom carrying a little baby with a two-year-old in tow walking to the clinic. Well, when I finally got into the room, it was this same family. They had taken two buses to get there. This mother was coming for a well baby, for a three-day baby check. And here she was taking the baby on the bus with the two-year-old in tow. That was almost a a come-to-Jesus moment for that resident. She now realized what families go through and how we need to be more empathic and understanding about what's going on. And had she not seen them, I mean, this poor mother who had taken all that time to get there with these two little children and then needed somebody to ask her, how are you doing? Maybe it's the only person that asked her that. Instead of somebody that came in, maybe with even a little chip on their shoulder, how quickly can I get this done so I can get on to the next patient? Because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a resident. I'm supposed to be seeing patients. Right, right. And and I know that there is that. I mean, the business of medicine is a whole nother podcast, but, you know, the making time for somebody, and it's not that hard to make some meaningful time in a few minutes. I think it takes sitting down. It takes not having your hand on the doorknob. It takes not typing or looking at your computer. But just taking a few minutes to say, hey, how are you doing? And when somebody remembers that, how was your vacation? Or what was your, how was school this year? You know, that doesn't take that long to do that. One of the things I always used to love to ask in the summer is I'd ask them what they're going to be doing. And then I'd say, what's the most important thing for you to do this summer? Which was always a head scratcher for them. But then I said, it's to read. Mm. And so it gave me the opportunity to sort of make sure that we were I was trying to connect with the family, but also to drive home one of the more important things that we do in our pediatric practice. Fortunately for me, and I I don't have that skill as much now with age, but I remembered most of the names of the siblings that when I saw the families. So when I asked, when I was seeing Sally and I asked how Johnny was, the the family immediately just felt this extra connection. Well, you you remembered that. Or the other thing is, There's some sneaky things you can do, like back in the day when we had handwritten charts, you could put sticky notes. You can put sticky notes in a computer. You can keep, you can put those kind of reminders because let's be honest. I mean, I don't remember everybody's name. I see people in the grocery store and they remember me and I'm like, I know your face, but you'll have to help me remember your name. But man, if you can remember it, they're like, oh my gosh, I just don't think, and I've said this many times, I don't think physicians realize the impact that they have on other people. When you remember somebody, that's a big deal. And like I tell all the trainees that I've had and myself, if I'm not humble daily, I'm not paying attention. And you can actually, you can compress the time frame. If you're not humbled hourly, probably you're not paying attention because of something you said or did that maybe was 
off topic or was misconceived. And so it's important to sort of take, be able to take that step back and look at what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the literal laying on of hands. And I once read a book by Abraham Verghese, who I think he's an amazing author. He is an infectious disease clinician, came from, I want to say Sri Lanka, I might have that wrong, but did his residency in New York and then went and into practice in Appalachia. And this was in the 80s. And he said there were all these young men that were coming home to their families and from big cities, New York, L.A., San Francisco. And they were sick and dying. And, well, it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And he sort of started to put those pieces together. It's a fascinating read, My Own Country. But one of the things that stuck with me was he was talking about a young man dying and he's seeing him frequently and sometimes in his own home. And these are people that often lived in very poor conditions. And the young man, as he's dying, is opening his shirt for Dr. Verghese to take a listen to his heart. And he said there was nothing about the listening to his heart that was going to matter to his actual medical condition. The fact that he heard crackles or rowls, it wasn't going to change anything. But it was the laying on of hands that this man wanted. It, so it was this ritual. And he does a beautiful TED talk about this, about the art of the physical exam. And, and there are a lot of cool things that you can pick up on physical exam. I mean, a lot of times you don't, but there are a lot of cool things that you can find just to, from a scientific, but it is something about that literal touch. And I'm sure you've had that experience over the years. What, what do you think about that? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, almost every encounter that I've had, even if it was for a simple febrile illness, always involved from the top of the head to the top of the pelvis for me. It wasn't just looking in the throat and the ears or listening to the chest, but it was doing it because that was allowed me in some ways to, to lay on the hands, but also to be more reassuring to mother that there is no, because if she said, well, how do you know there's nothing wrong in his abdomen? Well, I felt his abdomen. I know that his liver is not enlarged. I know that his spleen's not as large, not enlarged. I know that there's not uh, these other things going on. And those, so when I would tick off the list of what's right and what's not wrong, that was very reassuring. And if I just did that, feel look okay to me today, that, that doesn't work. Right, um, right. I love that. I remember somehow your cases that stick out in your head. It was a baby who was like eight months old, didn't look particularly sick, but had some vomiting. And so you're, I'm talking to the dad and doing my exam. And again, like you, I often would I take a look in your ears, nose, throat, listen to your heart and lungs and just take a quick feel of the abdomen. And this eight month old had a huge liver and turned out that he had liver cancer. I wouldn't have found that had I not touched him. Now I've touched thousands of abdomens and haven't found liver cancer, but I would have missed it. And then, of course, I saw that patient throughout his whole life, which he survived his liver cancer. And I was a trusted member of the family. And it wasn't like I had to make that kind of diagnosis for him again. But, you know, now I was part of their circle of people who cared about them. And it was a simple thing that took seconds for me to do. As a Unfortunately, as a patient, I've become more more aware of the art of medicine as I've gotten older, having had three 
cardiac ablations and then a bad gallbladder episode with complications and recognizing that just a howdy at the bedside, if it's supplemented with something more, means so much more. I mean, a howdy at the bedside might be great if it's God's gift of medicine that just walked in the room, but somebody that then listens to my lungs, my heart, feels my abdomen and looks at my wound, I mean, that's what I want to know they're keeping track of. And so it's the package. I mean, I don't want someone just to come in and listen to my heart, lungs, look at my abdomen and, or look at, feel my abdomen and look at the wound, say goodbye. I'd like them to sit down for a second, ask me how I'm doing and if there's anything else they can help me with today. Even if there's not, and I, I just, it resonates so much. I was also sharing earlier, I took my parents and they're in their 90s for their routine physical and they weren't asked to get undressed. And the clinician, who was a lovely person, listened to their heart and lungs and said, okay, we'll see you in a year and I'll just refill your medications. Well, I just didn't feel like enough. And it wouldn't have been that hard to have done that little bit extra, but I felt like that things might have been missed. Now, the reality is things probably weren't going to be missed, but they might have been missed. And that's the part that the expectation of going to the doctor is that they're going to be, they're going to be contemplative. They're going to think about you and what's going on. It's interesting though. Let me go back to the early time in life, the first year or so of life. I have argued for the sake of argument that in many ways, the most important thing we have to do for parents and babies is listen and establish that trust, not even examine them, not even get vital signs. Now, that's not what that's not going to happen. And I don't mean that literally, but understanding what's going on in that family and understanding the dynamics and assure and establishing that there are indeed safe, stable, nurturing relationships are so much more important than listening to a normal heart. Right. Uh, But we're more likely to listen to a normal heart and dutifully record that than we are to spend that extra minute or so trying to establish what's actually going on in the infant's life and how we can be more impactful for them. Ah, the art of medicine. (laughs) It's the whole, like, I love what you said. It's the package. It's the listening. It's the caring. It's the touching. It's the thinking. And then... The reassuring or to say, gosh, I am worried about something and let's work on this together. And again, I think over time and I'm doing another podcast with a psychiatrist is the idea that we can fix things. And again, with kids with complex medical things, there are many things that we can't fix. But we can do is help the families manage, try and tackle what some of their struggles are. I mean, and that's where I think A lot of the pleasure, joy, and reward in medicine is, at least for me. I was also facilitated with the ability to to do bird calls. So when I was examining a child, (laughs) when I would ask him where it was, or I could tap him on the head, are you hollow? And so these things that would distract them, but would subsequently... Can you check my head again, Doc? When they come back, when they come back, or where? Right. That's the. I see a bunny in your ear. Don't scare them. <laughs> let me look. Let me look. Oh, yeah. Would, still- so it, which is, I mean, the fun thing about the art of medicine and pediatrics is you, you can be that child and enjoy those interactions. At the, obviously, I've seen some of my colleagues at times break down the barrier too much and become too childish. So they, you have to remember where you are and what your role is. Right, right. You want to be somewhat of a respected person too. That's right. 
and in doing this, so you've been practicing medicine for a long time. And what brings you the most joy when you think about your career? It's seeing patients and seeing the and helping families and seeing their responses down the line. I mean, I have so many people reach out to me now that I have not a clue as to who they are, but they see me in the grocery store. They see a Facebook post. They say, Dr. Saul, you are my doctor. Thank you so much. You did such a great job. And people that say I delivered them when I know I didn't, but for some reason they think because maybe I was in the delivery room or because I took care of them early on that I was that vital person in their life. And I must admit, I feel the same for my pediatrician that was at the delivery for my first son. I mean, I, they're just, it's a revered status, but it doesn't go to my head. Now, I must admit it was not unusual for me to go to the office sort of dreading going to the office. I would try, oh gosh, do I really want it? It's just what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And, and when I was done at the end of the day, I go, wow, that was so spectacular. Yeah. And especially when I had in my practice in the first several decades of life, we had night hours. So especially when I was driving in at six o'clock for the for my six to nine shift. Ugh, I remember those days too. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay, when can I get home? And it was just never, a point. I just enjoyed it so immensely. Yeah, I remember we did. And just being so humbled. I mean, for me, it's the personal growth that that has happened for me. I remember those nights. We used to have to go into the emergency room and see patients on occasion, not always, but, you know, sometimes it would keep them out of being admitted. And it'd be two o'clock in the morning. And I always remember one of our friends who was a neurosurgeon, if he had to come in, he wore a suit and tie in two o'clock in the morning. Not me. I had on blue jeans and a sweatshirt. But man, there was that impact. And it was hard on on my personal life. That was a push-pull about, I mean, there is sacrifice in that. It was impacted my family. And so there was that push-pull about how much do I, can I be there for other people? And how much do I be there for my family and for myself? But there was a huge reward in doing that. I mean, I it was hard. I mean, I gave up a lot of sleep. <laughs> but I, there was something to be said for those experiences that you People are so relieved to see you. And you learn such teamwork. I mean, and you learn whether you're, in a, whether you're in a practice that you own or a group practice or solo or for a healthcare system. You learn that in many ways that the practice was as strong as, as everybody. So the phone clerk, the receptionist, the, the triage nurse, if there was everybody needed to be a part of the team, feel a part of the team. Because that family needed to feel like they're the most important people that showed up there that day. Well, and when the patients, when the staff knows them by name, and the other joy for me in medicine, of course, is my partners, both the nurse practitioners, PAs, other pediatricians, other specialists, sort of bumping shoulders, asking for help. I think that there's that idea and maybe some of the trainees that are listening and early career physicians, that idea that you're supposed to know everything. I think the older I got, the more I was like, I clearly don't know everything, but I know people who do know. And it's okay to ask. And in fact, I think it's reassuring to say to a patient, I'm not really sure about this, but I know someone and I'm going to check with them because they're really gifted in this. And it didn't make them, it didn't make me seem less in their eyes. I think they were like, oh, she's being careful. And that meant something to them. One of the things, I'm sure you had this, I mean, the first 20 plus years of my practice, there was no such thing as a nurse triage system for the phone calls. 
I mean, if a phone call came into the practice, it was routed directly to the physician. Yeah. So we took all phone calls, even when we got home and during the middle of the night. And I must admit, I learned so much from that. At the time, I, I growled under my breath, but I learned so much about what families actually go through. And because you don't necessarily encounter all those trials and tribulations as a parent yourself. And it's only by learning those and seeing those. Yeah. And I think there's sort of, I mean, a lot of it's fear-based. Vomiting and a fever at two in the morning is way scarier than at two in the afternoon. And everything seems worse at night in the dark. And I think oftentimes people just wanted to reassure, like, you know, is this okay if I wait until morning? And and I knew, you know, again, you remember those calls, like the baby who was four days old and the mom called and said, his color's not good. He's kind of gray. And I was like, you need to go to the emergency room right now. And this kid had aortic stenosis that was critical. And I met them there, the neonatologist, and he survived into adulthood. But that could have gone so wrong. Yeah. And hopefully the triage folks pick that stuff up. We're trusting a lot to do that. And again, it's hard to be all the things all the time. And so, yeah, it's it's always a kind of a give and take. Well, that sort of gets me to, and I think that was one of your questions, Sort of what if I look back on my career, sort of what are the what are some of the take home messages that one has? And I had to write an article. I was didn't have to. I was asked to write an article for Exceptional Parent magazine and sort of about my career. And so at the end of that, I realized, well, now it's time to sort of reflect. And what are the things that you could tell others that have made a difference? And you could come up with a whole laundry list of things, but I decided to come up with five. And they are one, trust the intuition of parents. That I think we really need to be able to trust when parents say they just aren't right. And we know that's not a hundred percent because of the parents' abilities, but more likely than not, they're going to guide us in the right direction than if we keep our stubborn I know what's right and you don't. Number two, leave your biases at the door. You know, we've all had situations where we're, we've been told patient X is in the room and you go, oh man, when I saw patient X last time, that did not go well. That mom is a real difficult to deal with or dad or their family dynamics. Start anew. When you open that door, start anew. Leave your biases at the door. And especially the biases that might come from pre-reviewing the chart in terms of what other people said, what other clinicians said, or other specialists said, you might assume that what they said is the gospel. Because a specialist said he or the child had a specific disorder doesn't make it absolute. So leave your biases at the door. Listen intently. Look at the patient. Don't be tapping at the typewriter, looking at the monitor while you're listening. You can't multitask in that way. I'll be the first to say that I've done it and I don't like it. I mean, so I'm at the end of my career, I tried to get better in terms of listening intently with the electronic medical record. When we just had paper charts, boy, it was easy. I could, Great. I could just put the chart down there and listen and talk. Smile, engage. It's amazing how a smile can make a world of difference, especially for a family that's going through some sort of crisis and to be, and so they know that you are understanding, empathetic, and trying to get to the bottom of what's affecting them and how they can make a difference. The last is what you, what we've talked about with your parents and with my health and other issues. Remember your humanity. Remember our 
shared humanity, we're just as likely to be on the other side of that patient encounter. So that ophthalmologist, when he brings his 92-year-old mother into the office who has macular degeneration and the the doctor taking care of his mother just sits there dictating all the time and not answering any questions, he's going to say, what the heck's wrong here? He forgot his humanity. He forgot what it's like to have a parent that would be in the same situation. Yeah, yeah. No, I. those are all really good things and I think so important. Another one that, and I think it fits into your five here, was Heather Fork. He said, hey, how are you asking that? A lot of times when situations are complex and difficult, you can just turn to the parent and say, how are you doing? And again, you may not be able to fix any of it, but you've done something by the asking. When you get that quizzical look from a family, it's okay to say, I see you might be questioning what I'm saying, or there might be something else here. What is there? Is there something else going on that I can help you with? And then it's something you only get with experience. Tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me more about what's going on with that. Yeah. Or you look, this looks like it doesn't make sense. Or you look upset. Those are the hard ones when somebody's mad (laughs) to be able to say, gosh, you really seem upset about that because you're feeling, I mean, automatically defensive, right? Right. Well, I wanted to circle back maybe in closing (laughs) about something that you said about shared humanity. There was a really touching piece written about the solo pediatrician in Uvalde, Texas. His name is Roy Guerrero. And I mean, honestly, if I think on it, it make me tear up, but I literally sobbed reading it because he was getting all these texts that this awful thing was transpiring. And he responded to the emergency room and of course, and the scene, and it was just horrific. He said like a war zone. And of course, there were all these terrified children, but they were so relieved to see him. Now, clearly he couldn't fix any of what had happened and he wasn't the surgeon, but he could say, you're okay, you're safe now. He's not coming to get you because a lot of the children were saying that. And that was a gift to those children and those families. And again, he was just riding the ride. And I think that there's a lot to be said for being with people. And I think a lot of people, Young pediatricians misunderstand the importance of that. Yeah. They feel like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just here. I'm not, I haven't done anything. But by being there and by comforting, you've done a tremendous amount. Oh, absolutely. I, it circles back to the art of medicine, the gift, the privilege of practicing medicine. And I don't mean to discount the burden of these enormous loans that our young clinicians carry the pressure of RVUs and productivity and feeling relegated to being a technician. But gosh, if you can hang on to the reason you went into this, you didn't go into this to make a lot of money, not pediatrics. And you gave up a lot. You gave up a lot of time while your friends were partying, you were at the library and you, a lot of personal expense and actual dollar spent But you did that because you wanted the rewards and the joy of medicine. And hang on to that. That's my advice. Hang on to that because that's, and there's so much joy in seeing children. I mean, I, kudos to my internal medicine and family medicine colleagues. I think family medicine that this, a lot of our conversation must resonate with them too, because they see these families a, a whole lifetime. And generations, but there's something special about seeing kids. I mean, you get to laugh every day 
at least one one time during the day you get to laugh. And if you do it from for the folks that practice in a practice or in a clinic where they can have continuity, it's from birth to into the teen years. It is just unbelievable. It is just so rewarding. And for the child, for the sibs, for the family, it's just you're a friend and you're a trusted colleague. Yeah, the family friend that gets invited to graduation parties and weddings and baby showers. And I read something really sad somewhere about hospital, you know, people that were employing folks like to encourage them. It was okay to go to funerals, but not to do those other things. And I just was like, I that just, that doesn't ring true with me. I mean, if people want to share their family events with you, I mean, that was hard for me to read. I have a, I had a, a in my gen- medical genetics practice, I had a, a child with PKU who we obviously changed the diet in the first weeks of week of life. And they came into the office almost weekly or initially to, for us to monitor the blood levels of phenylalanine. And the family had to drive about an hour and a half each way to get there. So we be, we became closely bonded. They ran a car dealership. I ended up getting my car from the car dealership. And the girl has now gone to law school, married, has a child. And I remember calling the mom up the other day. He said, how's everything going? And it was just like we were best friends. And I used to joke because she used to bring me every so often a chocolate cheesecake and to thank me. And I said, I really am missing those chocolate cheesecake. <laughs> I had a family that brought me fudge every Christmas and it was the best fudge. So yeah, those are those were special things. I guess back in the day, they got chickens for work done. So <laughs> anyway, well, listen, I want to thank you for your expertise, your service. And I know you've got a new project potentially in the works. Did I hear that? Yes, we're... Um, and actually, back in 2018, in the middle of the last presidential administration, I was really discouraged with how things were going. And I had heard a talk by John Kerry that sort of was a light bulb moment for me. And I say, well, sort of what really matters? He was talking about his book, Every Day is Extra, that just came out, and uh, which was a remarkable book. And so what really matters? And I stayed up all night sort of coming up with a list of things that I thought really mattered. Truth, trust science, civility, diversity, and faith. So I've been, over the last several years, I must admit, the pandemic sort of derailed me because I had planned on sort of writing during the pandemic. And I, like a lot of us, I just sort of numbed my way through it. But I've got a renewed sense of interest in it right now. And about two-thirds of the way through the manuscript and have just uh, brought on a co-author who I think is going to add a real dynamic vision to it also. So you know, where, if it'll get published, where it'll get published, I don't know. But, and it's sort of presumptuous for, for me as a person, for me as a pediatrician to write what really matters. Some people say it's a spiritual thing. Some people will say it's something else or it's personal. I think it helps define what we need to be doing as a society to make a difference going forward. So for me, it's a logical extension of the work I've been doing in terms of promoting citizenship, promoting community improvement, promoting parenting. So I want to stick my toe in the water of what I think what really matters. Yeah, I think that you have earned the position so you don't have to be feel like you don't, you shouldn't deserve that position of being an elder with wisdom is something to be said. And again, I'm quoting Heather Forkey because she said so many smart things. But one of them, she said, if not us, who, if we're not the ones to speak up for children, who else is going to do it? And 
So, so do that. Keep doing that. I'm excited. You mentioned elder. What obviously, when you become older, you can become elderly. You can become an elder. I want to do the latter. <laughs> I want to be an elder. Well, I am. I hope you can, you can age or you can sage, and I want to sage. I want to be in your club. <laughs> Well, listen, I hope for listeners out there, this doesn't feel too telling you what to do. I just want you to hear a voice like like yours, Bob, talking about the joy that you've, I mean, you spent what, nearly 50 years doing this profession because you found joy and purpose. And so I hope that those of you that are out there listening that the day in, the day out sometimes is a drag and it is, there's a lot of burnout, the pandemic Mm, was so demoralizing for so many of us. I mean, when we're not trusted, but I do think pediatricians hold a special place because we're the ones that somebody can turn to at two in the morning and say, I'm scared. Yeah. And I hope that those people that are looking to us for reassurance and advice are also trusting us about things like vaccines. Maybe that's a lot to ask, but I'm still hopeful. So you keep doing all the things you're doing in the world because you clearly have so much more to say and share. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you. It's yeah, it's going to be tough to shut me up. (laughs) Well, don't you have a lot to offer. So, hey, listen, be well. And again, keep putting things out there. And when your book is ready to publish, let me know. and We'll do a story about it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to get back with you. Take care. I continue to be inspired by pediatricians And for all those professionals who take care of children, I I mean all of you. And I hope that this conversation reignited your passion for what you do. And I hope it reminds you of the power of your position in our society and the hope that we can spread and share amongst our colleagues and with our families and children because it is truly a gift and privilege to practice medicine. So here are my takeaways. Number one, of course, thank you to Dr. Saul for his return to the podcast, and I so appreciate his wisdom and insights. Number two, use your professional pedestal or pulpit to be the voice for children. This is your opportunity to serve. Number three, it is easy to think our job is to tell others how to live better. But our job is really to listen first and then to offer advice, guidance, insights, experience, hope, and empathy. That's a tall order in a 10-minute visit, but you can leave people with just a grain of that for sure. Number four, do not underestimate the power of literal touch, the sacredness of the laying on of hands. And I'm going to put another reminder in here, and it's in the show notes too. Please take a look at the TED Talk by Dr. Abraham Verghese called A Doctor's Touch. It totally moved me and I've never forgotten it. Number five, if you are not humbled daily or hourly, as Dr. Saul said, because, hey, he's an overachiever, you may not be paying attention. Number six, pediatrics is advocacy. Use your voice. Use it loudly. Use it proudly. Number seven, five pieces of advice from Dr. Saul. Trust parent intuition. Leave biases and assumptions at the door and start anew when you enter the exam room. Listen intently. Look at the patient and family. Step away from the computer when you can and ask for forgiveness when you can't. Smile and engage. This is the fun part. 
and remember your shared humanity. This is the gift because it might be you or your child or your grandchild, someone sitting on the other side of that physician, and we want to be the caring physician that we want others to be for us. Number eight, Dr. Saul's next project will be an examination of what a society needs to thrive, and he includes truth, trust, science, civility, and faith. Stay tuned, and we'll do a repeat podcast when that book is done. Number nine, I will leave you there. Enjoy your art, the practice of medicine. As I noted at the beginning of this takeaway piece, this is an incredible privilege that we have and our opportunity to serve to make the world a better place for children. We can share joy. We get to share the joy and delight of child's laughter and the grateful faces of parents when we sit with them when their child is sick or at worst, dying. And this is a job that is not a job, really. It's a calling. And I know all of you have had that experience of knowing that this is a sacred profession. Take care and pass the gift. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.